0: Okay, so we are looking at Paul's second letter, but as you know more properly, his third letter to the uh, church at Corinth. And we're in, that, we're in this part of the letter where Paul is addressing what does authentic, genuine Christian leadership looks like? What does that look like? And the reason for that is that there are new, lab, uh, new leaders who have come into the church in Corinth, and they're saying of Paul's leadership hey, he is not the real deal. That is not what real leadership looks like. Okay, so how should these Christians in Corinth, or how should you and I decide whether that's true or not? How should you decide? How can you sort genuine Christian ministry or genuine Christian leadership from the imitation and from the fake? Well, I want you to think about one aspect of leadership, okay, which is change. Okay, and how does change happen? How do you manage change? And I want you to think about that in terms of people's lives, in terms of your personal life. Okay, how does personal inner life change happen? Okay, think about it for yourself. I mean, you could, you could have a vision. Or maybe I can ask you, do you have a vision for the kind of person that you want to become? Okay, maybe you think of that in terms of your career. Do you have a sort of a plan for where you want your career to go? Where you want to get to in life? Or maybe you think of it in terms of your body. You have this image of what you want to look like. And maybe if you're a guy, you are working out to try and get your body to look like that. Or maybe for you it's in terms of relationships. Okay, you're single and you don't want to be. You want to be married. And so your goal is to find a life partner. Okay, the problem is that for any of those, if you want something too much in any of those areas, whether that's your career or your body or relationships, it can begin to show cracks in your character, can't it? If you over-desire in one of those areas, over-desire some career goal, and you will find yourself trying to ingratiate yourself with some people and ignoring or trampling on other people. Or, and you'll either, if you achieve your goal, you'll, you'll feel proud, and if you don't, you'll hate yourself. Okay, over-desire in the area of your physical appearance, and you are in danger of becoming obsessive about it, aren't you? And maybe you'll find yourself, or other people will notice you, becoming just a bit too vain. And you become one of those people who, you know, you you notice it for yourself, and maybe other people notice it, that you spend just a bit too much time in front of the mirror. Or over-desire a significant relationship, and you're in danger of making poor choices along the way, and you'll ignore red flags. So when it comes to the person that you want to become, character inevitably trumps everything else, doesn't it? It's the kind of person that you are, it's the kind of person that you are becoming, that you want to become. Okay, but do you have a sense of that for your own self of the kind of person you want to become? the kind of character that you want to become. Now, maybe for you, that is no more developed than you see someone else's joy or patience or courage, and you think, man, I want to be more like them. I want to be more joyful like that person. I want to be courageous like she's courageous. Or maybe, you know, maybe it's not uh, self-subconscious for you. Maybe it's very conscious, and you, you look at yourself, you look at your character, and you see things about yourself that you don't like, that you want to change. How do you get there? Okay, how does real life change happen? in a life change, personal life change. And interestingly, that is exactly what Paul is dealing with here, because he, as he tackles what authentic Christian ministry and leadership looks like, he tackles this issue of how does authentic life change happen? First point then, the death of moralism. The death of moralism, look at verses seven and eight. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? Okay, so Paul is contrasting two very different types of ministry, two very different approaches to how you can relate to God, and what follows from that is how change can happen in your life. And the first is the way that it seems that these new leaders in Corinth are saying that you should do life. Okay, and that is that you can become a better you by your own effort, by you trying, by you working on yourself, by you having more faith, by you praying more, by you drawing on your inner resources. And Paul is saying, when the emphasis is on you, okay, that is the ministry of the law. And Moses, he went up Sinai, up Mount Sinai, and came down with the commandments of God engraved on tablets of stone, and Paul calls that the ministry of death. How, why? Okay, how could telling the people of Israel how God wants them to live, what God requires of them, and them trying to do that, or you and me trying to do that, how could that be called death. Well, think about it. The giving of the law was surrounded by death. Moses got to climb the mountain, but if anyone else even approached the mountain, they would die. And the law contained commandments that if you broke those commandments, the sentence was death. And there were other commandments, which if you broke them, you didn't die. But what you did was you got to offer an animal sacrifice in your place. But what happened to the animal? The animal died. Okay, but Paul's talking about something deeper as well, when it comes to the law and the ministry of death. And that is that the law brings about an inner death. Okay, because it tells you, this is wrong, so don't do it. And this is right, so do it. But you and I can read it and we think, yeah, but I want to do the stuff that I'm told I can't do. And I don't want to do the stuff that I'm told I must do. And what does that make you? That makes you a rebel against God. Or you might read God's law and you try and obey it and you try and be a better you. But if you fail, what do you feel? You feel wretched about it. You sink into despair. Or if you succeed, you are in danger of sinking into pride. And both self-hatred and self-pride are a form of death. A death of inner character, of good character. Okay, but the law also brings death, interestingly, by provoking you. Okay, listen to what Paul says in Romans 7 verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now, when I was an undergraduate, I got to hear a guy called John Chapman, who's an Australian evangelist. Simon Lindley, do you know John? Did you ever? Yeah, you knew John Chapman. I think he's dead now. And He came to my university and spoke for a week uh, in a missions week, and he told a story that seared itself on um, my uh, brain and I suspect it might for you. He told a story about getting on a train and seeing a sign that said, Do not spit in this train. And Chapman said it had never occurred to him to want to spit in the train until he read that sign. And then what happens? Okay, you just feel the spit, don't you? You just you can just feel it forming in your mouth until you can't resist it. You in the train. Okay, it's why Paul calls the law, verse 9, the ministry of condemnation, because it tells you what you've got to do, but you can't do it, or it provokes you to do it, and, it, so, and it's, so it tells you that you're guilty, and it gives you no power to do anything about it. It tells you this is what your character should be like, but it doesn't help you get there. It just tells you continually, hey, you are falling short. You you can't do this. And worse still, all your efforts to change and to do better either end in failure or pride or even more sin, all of which are death. Now you might think, yeah, but come on, Martin. When I think about being a better me, when I think about being a better person, I'm not thinking in terms of Old Testament law. I just want to be kinder. I just want to get less angry with the kids. I just want to be more patient or more loving. Okay, sure. But think about it. The moment you start thinking in terms of being better or doing more, you are effectively establishing a new law with, with standards to meet. Okay, you're, just, you're just creating a new law. And to feel good about yourself, you've got to meet these standards. Okay, so whether it's, your own per, whether it's the Old Testament law, whether it's your own personal targets, whether it's the guidelines or you know, 12 steps of some you know, self-help guru you are still going to face the problem, which is your inability to keep it or your pride if you do. Okay, So whether it's God's law or yours or anyone else's, moralism, okay, you trying to improve yourself and be a better you and meet the standard or better than others, Paul says it always ends in death. Okay, but then Paul takes another angle. And it's the glory shining on Moses' face. And you, you can read it in two Corinthians, which is why we put that passage from Exodus in there. Because you can read it and think, What is what's going on? What's Moses getting at? What's Paul getting at? Okay, Moses comes down from the mountain with having received the law, and his face is a light with God's reflected glory. And the people of Israel see it. And how do they respond? They pull back. They retreat. They withdraw in fear. They realize that this is a sign of Moses having been with God, having, having met with God, and they pull back. So every time that Moses came out of the tent of meeting, having met with God there, he would veil his face so that they couldn't see the glory. And then when he goes back into God, he takes the veil off. And in between, the glow on his face would slowly fade. Okay, from that, Paul uses that as an illustration, and he makes two points from it. Firstly, the fact that the glory faded should tell you that the Old Testament law keeping the commandments, following the feasts, or in their day, making the sacrifices. This, the Old Testament law was not the deal to end all deals. Telling people, this is the kind of person that you need to be. These are God's standards for your life and for your character. This is a standard. That was not the last thing that God had to say on the subject, that glory, was coming to an end in fact paul says it three times doesn't he verses 7 11 and 13 that the glory of the old covenant was being brought to an end okay so guys whether it is some new leader pitching up in corinth whether it is some internet pastor whether it is some self-help guru whose books you read if anyone says to you you have just got to believe in yourself you've got to have more faith You've got to pray harder. You've got to follow these seven steps or these, you know, follow these five pillars or this path to enlightenment or whatever. It is a form of law keeping. It brings about an inner death, but also, Paul says, its glory soon fades. Okay, but secondly, Paul says it's an illustration of people's separation from God. You see, Moses experienced the glory of God but who else did it's only Moses isn't it no one else did everyone else just pulled back scared as Paul says in verse 14 their minds were hardened they had been rescued from slavery to be the one people on the face of the earth who met with God and reflected his glory out into the world and displayed his glory to the world. But instead, their hearts were hardened. They, they didn't want that, they refused that. They, they refused to embrace that relationship with God, leaving Moses as the only one reflecting God's glory and leaving this veil over his face as a picture of their separation from God. He'd get face to face with God and come out glowing, but then he has to wear this veil over his face as a walking parable of a people refused access to the presence of God because of the state of their hearts. But what is interesting is that Paul's point is that that wasn't a problem just for the people of Israel. In Moses' time, verse 15, you see, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Because when you think that your standing before God depends on your moral conduct, and you making the standard, and you improving yourself, you are going to be wary and fearful and distrustful of God, just like they were. Okay, I'll give you an example. Or an illustration. Imagine a young couple who are dating. Or, you know, I mean, it could be a a married couple as well. But um, imagine a young couple who are dating. But she knows, the girlfriend knows, that she has to meet the boyfriend's standards in some area or face his displeasure. How's the girlfriend going to feel? She knows that if she's not not meeting his standards, what's she going to feel? She's always going to feel on edge, isn't she? She's always going to feel ever so slightly unsure. She's always going to be on her guard. Am I good enough? And listen, if that's the basis of your relationship with God, like her, you will be emotionally guarded. You'll pull back. You'll feel this distance between you and God. You will see God's perfections, his standards, but you will miss his love you'll see his glory but you'll miss his grace you'll see his justice but you'll miss his mercy because you won't see that all along the law was pointing you to something even more glorious its glory was fading something was coming whose glory would stay forever second point then the life of the spirit the death of moralism, but the life of the spirit. Look at verses eight and nine. Will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Okay, so if the Old Testament law or the kind of pull yourself up by the bootstrings kind of spirituality, the moralism advocated by these new leaders in Corinth, if that, results in condemnation, the new covenant, the new thing that God is doing, the ministry of the spirit that Paul is preaching, he says results in righteousness. One says, this is how you must live, but you don't, and you can't, so you're guilty. But the other says, no, you are not guilty. You are righteous. God sees you and says, you don't need to polish yourself up for me to accept you. I already approve of you. Which is why Paul says in verse 6 that the spirit gives life. The law gives death, but the spirit gives life. Life instead of death. Righteousness instead of condemnation. Okay, but how does that work? I mean, God just saying you're okay, you know, God sees me, says I'm okay, that goes against everything that every other religion says, or every other self-help guru says, or frankly, a whole load of, what the whole load of internet pastors say, because everyone else is saying, you've got to do this. You've got to achieve this. You've got to do this or this or follow this or this if you're going to get to heaven or achieve nirvana or get to paradise. And Paul is saying, no, the ministry of the spirit of God, this ministry, God sees you and says, you are already righteous in my sight. Okay, but how does that work? Okay, well, before Paul tells us, he returns to this idea of glory Okay, because the glory of the old, of the law, is nothing in comparison to the glory of the new. Verse 10. What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now, do you remember those old dial-up phones? Okay, with the disc, you remember those? And you put your finger in and move them. Did you have them in Holland or Australia? You probably still have them in Australia, don't you? Yeah, and you put, you put your finger in and, and you turn the disc. They were amazing, weren't they? But now, I mean, now you've got this video phone in your pocket, amazing fraction of the size. Or do you remember the days when, to listen to music, you took a vinyl record out of its sleeve, you put it on a turntable, and then you put a needle of all things onto this record player. some of us old enough to remember doing that? Yeah, some of us, yeah, just a few of us. Okay, but, and that was nice. But now what have you got? Now you've got this little plastic blob in the corner of your room that you can yell at. Alexa! Alexa, wake up! No, not! Alexa, play me! No, Alexa, wake up! It's so much more relaxing, isn't it? So much more enjoyable. Okay, or imagine that you are a pretty good tennis player, and you win all the club competitions. But then a new player joins your club, and they wipe the floor with you. Now, does that mean that the old dial-up phones or the record players... Or you as a tennis player weren't good back in the day and the answer is no it just means that something better has come along and in comparison there is no comparison and Paul is saying was the glory on Moses's face real glory yes But that glory was nothing in comparison to what the ministry of the spirit through the gospel has to offer you because in place of death, it brings life. In place of condemnation, it brings righteousness. And more even than that, it has the power to do what the Old Testament law or modern moralism can never do. It has the power to change you and to change you for the better. Last point then, beholding and becoming. Okay, look at verse 14 again. Their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Now, I think it would be fair to say... I don't think any of us will be sorry to see the back of face masks, will we? I mean, when that day is over, we will all be glad. Because they just make communicating and getting to know people just way harder. What if that is what it is like for you to relate to God? What if it feels like there is always something between you? Not over your face, but over your heart. And it creates distance. Okay, that is exactly what it's like when you're standing before God depends on you and your performance and you making the grade. There will always be distance because there'll always be this grumbling level of background fear because you can never know that you've really been good enough to approach him with confidence, But Paul says, yes, but that veil, that division, that distance is removed in Christ because it's in Christ that you are declared not guilty because at the cross, he was declared guilty for you because at the cross, he took all of your sin, all of your failure to to be good enough. He took all of it upon himself. And as you put your faith in him and turn to him, he takes your guilt and you take his righteousness. Verse 16. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Because in Christ, there is no veil. You know, as Keturah prayed, the curtain of the temple was torn into another veil, another form of separation between us and God. In Christ, there is no barrier now between you and your father. And so now there's no reason to draw back in fear or to hide your face in shame. Why? Because Jesus has made you righteous. But moralism, trying to be good enough, trying to make the grade or to be spiritual enough or to have faith enough, that can never do that for you. Only Christ can. Because the ministry of the spirit, the proclamation of the gospel, is never about what you have to do. It's always and only about what Jesus has already done for you. Verse 17. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from death, freedom from condemnation, freedom from fear, freedom to approach God. God with confidence and as you do that is when your life really begins to change verse 18 and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit you see, the ministry of the Spirit, the good news of what Jesus has already done, it does not outglory the old covenant, the ministry of the Lord, just because it's new. It outglories it because of its scale. You see, in the old covenant, who entered God's presence and beheld his glory and came out shining? One man, Moses. But now in Christ, in the ministry of the spirit, in the new covenant, who gets to enter God's presence and behold his glory and to come out and reflect that to the world? All of us do. And Paul is saying that the law, I mean, it's like a single candle, isn't it? Just imagine a single candle on a pitch dark night and that candle is lit And it's put in the middle of a football pitch in the dead of night. Okay, Is that candle burning? Is it providing light? Sure it is. Just like in the old covenant, Moses, one man, shone. But now in Christ, all of us get to shine. Did Moses reflect God's glory? Absolutely. But now see that candle And now the floodlights on the football pitch go on with all their multitude of bulbs. What do you think of the glory of the candle now? It is swamped in the glory of these thousands of light bulbs. And Paul is saying that is the glory of the new covenant that from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, including you and me, we all get to behold and to reflect God's glory. And it is as you behold his glory that you begin to change. I mean, think about it. You always become like what you behold, don't you? You always become like what you behold. You inevitably become more like what you spend your time looking at or watching online, or reading. What you behold inevitably shapes and forms you. Watch porn, and that is inevitably going to shape the way that you view sex, and you see women. Read angry blog articles. Is that going to make you more loving and patient? It just makes you more angry, more frustrated with those around you. But Paul says, behold Christ's glory and you are going to be steadily transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. You are going to become increasingly the person that you were always supposed to be, an image bearer who reflects the glory of God out into the world. Now, that doesn't mean that you are going to physically glow Okay, like you have eaten some radioactive soup. Okay, though you have to admit that there are some older Christians who most definitely have a bit of a glow about them, don't you, I mean, like Francois and Mighty, like on the retreat when Mighty's trying to take the microphone off of Francois. Okay, you've got to admit there is a bit of a glow about some of our old saints. Okay, but it's not talking about a physical glow. It's talking about the light of your character, the transformation of your character, Okay, but if to change, you've got to behold Christ's glory. What is that? What's glory? Okay, well, in the Old Testament, glory carried this sense of heaviness, of weightiness. And God's glory was and is the reverence-inducing display of who he is. But where do you get to see that? Where do you get to see who Christ is and see his character in all of its weight. I'm gonna give you a few examples. John said of the incarnation, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. When you, when you behold the Son of God giving up his glory and humbling himself as a man to rescue you, you begin to behold his glory. Then at the wedding at Cana, as Jesus turns water into wine, John said, then Jesus manifested his glory. How come? Because when you see him doing that, you see him rescuing a newly married young couple from public shame. And you see him declaring himself to be the ultimate master of the feast. And as you do, you behold his glory. At his transfiguration, as Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets are both eclipsed by Jesus, Luke says that the disciples saw his glory. So when you begin to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of every Old Testament law, every Old Testament sacrifice, every Old Testament feast, that he's a fulfillment of every prophet, priest, and king, you begin to behold his glory. Jesus said that the day will come when the Son of Man will return and you will see him come in glory to repay everyone for what they have done. When you see and begin to realize that Christ is the ultimate righteous judge, you begin to behold his glory. As the writer to the Hebrews says, we see him, Jesus, crowned with glory. And yet, it's in the garden of all places. On the night that he was betrayed, that Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. And it is at the cross as Jesus gives himself for rebels like you and me, the king for the outcasts, as he is condemned so that we might go free. That is where we get to behold his glory. So where do you see his glory? In his incarnation, in his transfiguration, in his living and dying and rising and ascending and reigning. And it is as we behold his glory, as we think deeply about all that he is and all that he's done for us and all that he's going to do for us, it's as we behold him that we begin to grow in his likeness. How come? Because you see his humility and it begins to humble you. You see his grace, the way he treats others, and you become slowly more gracious. You see his courage on your behalf. And it makes you more courageous. As we look at our own characters, we see our faults and we want to be more kind. We want to be more loving. We want to be more patient. We want to be more pure or more generous. What we're really saying is, I want to be more like Christ. Only the gospel has the power to do that. As it transforms you from one degree of glory to another, You behold and you become. Let's pray.